0: Chapter 6 of Thou Art the Man. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Thou Art the Man by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 6. If it could have been. Hubert Urquhart arrived three days after Mountfort's establishment at Ellerslie, by which time the stranger had made himself at home in his new surroundings, had explored gardens and park under Marie's guidance, had seen a coal-mine and an iron-mine, had become very good friends with Sir Joseph, and had won the approval of Sir Joseph's head-keeper urquhart's arrival was no more welcome to brandon than it was to marie arnold the old acquaintance was civil to the newcomer but was evidently displeased at finding a stranger domesticated at ellerslie the more so perhaps when he heard that the stranger was a connection of sir joseph's and had a legitimate claim upon his hospitality mr urquhart was thirty-four years of age and had been in a cavalry regiment and had sold out just before the abolition of purchase in the army he had married badly as sir joseph told brandon had married in haste and repented with equal celerity he had not been unkind to his wife But he had been neglectful, and even his battered conscience had felt some remorseful twinges when the poor faded prettiness, which had once been so purely pink and white, faded out of life altogether suddenly after the birth of a second baby which only survived the mother by a fortnight. She died at the Yorkshire parsonage, in which the greater part of her life had been spent and where her orphan daughter, Cora Lee was now being cared for by a widowed grandfather and two spinster aunts. Those remorseful pangs of conscience for a wife from whose deathbed he had been absent; did not long discompose the gentlemanlike equanimity, which was a mark of race, in Hubert Urquhart. He went back to his patrimonial home, a free man, and took his ease in the house of his elder brother, Lord Penrith, still a bachelor, and burdened with an estate, richer in acreage. And historical interest than in revenue. The Penriths had been poor for three generations and were getting poorer as land declined in value. Lord Penrith had just missed three great heiresses having tried his hardest for all three and having been near acceptance with each. There was something wanting in his nature where women are concerned the cold hardness of the urquhart character might have subjugated some meek sentimental girl whose dream of love is of upward-looking worshipping affection the love of the brooks for the moon but heiresses have got beyond that kind of sentimentalism they require to be worshipped themselves and the more exacting among them require sincerity in the worshipper lord penrith had never been able to even seem sincere and in each case he found finally that he had but made the running for some hot-headed impetuous lover who was able to put a little heart into the courtship crushed by his third disappointment, Penrith had retired to his Cumbrian castle and into himself and already bore the reputation of a misanthrope and a woman-hater. He had almost abandoned the hope of restoring the fortunes of his race by a wealthy alliance. The Anglo-American marriage, the strictly modern blend of the feudal castle and the transatlantic oil well had hardly come into fashion at that time and lord penrith having failed to attach himself to english coin in the possession of english beauty retired to his tent like achilles and sulked there content to shoot and fish and hunt and farm remote from society and woman's wiles He was Hubert Urquhart's senior by five years, a man of graver character but of the same hardness of fibre. Hubert had a kind of surface pleasantness which served his turn in society and which made him more popular than his elder brother. The Urquharts were a handsome race, always allowing for that hardness of expression which was a family characteristic Penrith and his brother were both tall, strongly built, yet slender, with commanding carriage and a thoroughbred delicacy of hand and foot. Both had the Scottish type of features and complexion, long, thin noses, thin lips and cold grey eyes and auburn hair, and they were men who looked their best in highland clothes, which made up by the picturesque for what was wanting in the wearer's impersonal charm. Hubert Urquhart's keen grey eye scanned Brandon from head to foot, weighed him in the balance, and found him wanting as a man of the world. I am told you have spent half your life in Africa, Mountford. He said, in a pause of their sport, as they sat on the river bank discussing a snack of bread and cheese and a bottle of bass. Not quite. My life has lasted twenty six years, of which five have been spent in Africa. Why did you go? Brandon's brow clouded at the question. I had been ill, and my doctor told me to live in the open air you could have done that in Argyllshire or Connemara no doubt but I preferred Mashona land curious fancy said Urquhart with a slightly contemptuous air I have never yet been able to realize the motives of a man who runs away from civilization Unless he is running away from debts and difficulties at the same time, which, of course, was not your case. And you really found the Crocodile and the Zambezi rivers more attractive than the Rhine or the Arno? Infinitely more attractive. I grant that the European rivers have all the charm of association that there are some names, Tiber for instance, which act like a spell, but that untrodden world yonder has what the civilized world has not, freshness and mystery. Ah, you hanker after the unexplored and the unknown. My ideal is a place like Monte Carlo, where. There are good hotels, pretty women, and a trente et quarante table, to say nothing of pigeon-shooting. I've never been further afield for pleasure than southern Italy, and I hope never to go. What do you think of old Higginson? A splendid old man, plenty of grit and plenty of heart a sturdy old Britain eighty, distinctly native production, the kind of man we all pretend to be proud of and of whom we all laugh at. I have not yet discovered the ridiculous side of his character. Ah, you are a connection, and you think it a point of honor to take the good old bloke seriously. I am indebted to him for infinite hospitality. I like his house, his shooting, his river, and I like him. But for all, I can't help seeing that he is a capital joke. His frank boastfulness, for instance, his missing aspirates, his prosy recapitulation of the various steps by which he mounted fortune's latter. The worst of such men is they can take nothing for granted. Everything in their lives must be expatiated upon. I like his frankness, and I don't mind his bragging, which is a part of his frankness. Ah, come now, Mountford, hang frankness, Call it frank egotism. Candor is only a synonym for want of manners. Your candid man goes about the world plaguing everybody with his own feelings and his own affairs. The first lesson a well-bred man learns is that the art of self-suppression and that the outside world doesn't care two pence whether he's alive or dead. What is your opinion of Sir Joseph's handsome niece, Ward, or whatever you like to call her? You have just told me that reticence is a sovereign merit in civilized man, and yet you question me about my opinions. Opinions are always interesting. Marie Arnold is a handsome woman. We are both men and are both mortal. We can hardly help admiring her. You have expressed an opinion that serves for both of us. There is nothing left for me to say. You think her handsome, then, questioned Urquhart, with keen eyes bent upon his companion. Of her type, most assuredly. But you don't care for the type, evidently i confess that there is a little too much prodigality in form and coloring for my ideal that southern splendor dazzles me more than it attracts the type i most admire is of a paler beauty there is an ethereal raphaelesque fairness which is to my mind the perfection of loveliness You are thinking of your cousin i fancy said urquhart still keenly watching of his companion's face of my cousin oh you mean miss higginson perhaps i have never seen her but her portrait as a child does certainly realize my ideal allowing for the disadvantages of that nondescript age which face and form have lost the charm of infancy without acquiring the grace of girlhood but how is it that you've never seen her before there is no how about the matter no reason why i should have been here sooner or why i should have come at all except the stream yonder my connection with ellerslie is of the slightest. My father and Lady Lucy were a kind of distant cousins, and Miss Higginson and I are just one stage further apart on the family tree. If you look at the Mountfort pedigree, you will find my name in an obscure bracket near the edge of the document, while Miss Higginson. As granddaughter of the present Lord Allendale occupies a central position. Miss Higginson is a personage anywhere and everywhere, a great heiress and a great beauty after your raphaelesque type. The beer bottles were empty by this time and the soothing digestive pipe was finished, so the two men went back to the river, and for the rest of the day were better occupied than in idle conversation. Perhaps Urquhart had asked all the questions he wanted to ask, yet he tramped back to Ellerslie House in a somewhat discontented mood, for being himself innately insincere, he found it difficult to credit anybody else with sincerity pretends not to like her he mused as he and Brandon walked up the hill between four and five o'clock after a disappointing day I never knew a man who did not depreciate the woman he was in love with they like to throw another man off the scent even when there is no particular reason for concealment. It was one of those halcyon days which April steals from May or June, and they found Sir Joseph taking tea on the terrace, with Marie ministering to his comforts, buttering his thin dry toast, and measuring out the precise amount of cream he liked in his cup. The old man was basking in the afternoon sunshine basking also in the sense of well-being of a life profitably spent of a great fortune honourably acquired of the power which wealth gives when that wealth is realized out of the views and sinews of working men and when a whole population depends for its bread upon one man at a nod of sir joseph's head those villages yonder scattered on the bleak moorland might be reduced to idleness and penury he had been upon the whole a beneficent employer he had never forgotten that he once worked for his bread or that his mother had risen at five o'clock on winter mornings to go out washing and that his sympathy with working men and women had never been lessened by his own luxurious surroundings. He knew as well what they wanted now as he knew what he wanted fifty years ago when he was one of them. The link between him and his people had never been broken. When there were strikes and lockouts over half-England, Sir Joseph's peace was unthreatened his men laughed trade unionists to scorn they wanted no socialist friends from newcastle or shields they had the best friends they could have in old joe and so long as old joe was above ground they would work for him and trust him he had made it the study of his life to be in advance of his men's man's necessities and to concede advantages unasked that were soon afterwards being fought for with murderous rancour in other districts. Little wonder, then, that Sir Joseph Higginson's influence was rooted deep in the hearts of his people. His young wife's brief residence at Ellerslie had been a reign of beneficence and it had been sibyl's delight to continue the good work her mother had begun so the voice of the socialist charmer charm he never so wisely was powerless to arouse evil feeling among the men of ellerslie the salmon fishers were received with cordiality by sir joseph and with a certain mute emotion by marie arnold who blushed at their coming blushed as she never had done when urquhart came alone he himself noted with sullen jealousy there was evidently a flirtation on foot already between brandon and her and brandon's indifference was only an assumption Urquhart told himself as he drew his chair to the tea-table and watched Marie as she poured out tea for the new arrivals. He marked her lowered eyelids, those full, firm eyelids, which had a look of marble above their dark lashes. He noticed the tremulous uncertainty of her hands as they moved among the cups and saucers. Yes, yes this newcomer had made a deeper impression upon her foolish little mind in three days than he had made in all his lengthy visits and with all his subtlest flatteries and most delicate attentions he had hated Mountford from the outset as a dangerous interloper and now he was assured That he had not hated him without cause Hubert Urquhart had fallen in love with Marie Arnold on his first visit to Ellerslie a three months widower but he had been careful to give no indication of his feelings he had been studiously courteous and he had ventured on an occasional compliment but he had gone no further waiting to be sure of his ground before he declared himself from the beginning he had made up his mind that Marie Arnold was nearer and dearer to Sir Joseph than the old man had told the world his casual way of talking of her sometimes as the daughter of a man who had been killed in his service sometimes as a kind of adopted niece did not deceive mr. Urquhart he saw that sir Joseph was as proud of Marie's beauty and accomplishments as he was of Sibyl's more refined attractions and that his eyes turned as fondly upon the alien when the two girls stood beside his chair bidding him good night as ever they turned upon his acknowledged daughter. Urquhart had no doubt that Marie too was his daughter, the issue of some intrigue which had lightened the cares of his work in the Belgian mining country, and it occurred to him that even an unacknowledged daughter of Sir Joseph Higginson would be no bad match for the impecunious scion of a noble house. He was cautious, however, and went to work deliberately, although he was deeper in love with Marie Arnold than he had ever been with any woman in his life. It may be that there was something in the warmth and quick impulse of her southern nature which charmed him by contrast with his own cold and sluggish temperament ice and fire could not have been more different but the ice trembled and melted at the touch of that fire and the hard battered man of the world owned himself the slave of this unsophisticated girl Festina Lente, he said to himself, I can't afford to marry her unless there's money in it. He had heard a good deal about a certain Andrew Orlebar, Sir Joseph's factotum, secretary, and alter ego, and he fancied that this Orlebar would be the right man to put him on the right tack. Orlebar must know all about Marie's origin and Marie's expectations. The only question was how much of that information Mr. Orlebar might be disposed to impart in answer to judicious pumping. Heretofore, Mr. Urquhart had been unlucky in finding Orlebar absent from Ellersby, either watching his chief's business in London or on some continental mission he was a man who needed no more warning or preparation for a journey to Egypt or India than commoner men required for a trip to Brighton or Paris he lived moved and breathed only for his employer had neither kith nor kin taste nor pleasures of his own a colorless faithful stolid unenjoying machine fashioned in the likeness of man this time urquhart had taken care to be sure of orlebar's presence at ellersby before he offered himself as a visitor and here in the glow of the afternoon sunlight came this very orlebar shuffling along the terrace faded dusky gray amid all the wealth of color in a garden unfolding its beauty to spring. He made a discordant note in that harmony of brilliant hues, a patch of dirty grey which offended the eye. He brought his chief a packet of letters, the afternoon mail, and they too were soon sitting apart with heads. Close together and brows bent over the open letters by the marble balustrade, and at the base of a marble pan, which seemed to look down at them in grim derision of their money-grubbing instincts. What did money matter to the great god Pan, the forest wildling, who had all the wealth of nature? for his own marie questioned the men about their day's sport and urquhart noticed how her glances turned shyly to mountfort and dwelt on his face while he talked and even lingered there when he was silent towards him urquhart she had shown only avoidance had made all pursuit of her difficult had been openly scornful when he praised her beauty or seemed to hang entranced upon her singing seemed only since music was a missing sense with most of the Urquarts and for him a barrel-organ in a london street playing the latest musical melody or a brass band in the park braying the last flashy waltz realized all that music should be. Marie sang her little French songs at Sir Joseph's bidding upon this evening just as she had sung on previous evenings, and Sir Joseph slept through the music as before. But Mountford perceived a change in her manner. She was less at her ease than she had been when he and she had been practically alone. She was silent in the intervals of her singing, and she retired early. When she was gone, Sir Joseph challenged Mountfort to a great game of cribbage, in which the old man excelled, and Urquhart strolled off to the billiard-room in quest of Andrew Orlebar, who had dined with him, and had disappeared immediately after dinner, neither sharing the after-dinner claret nor the after-dinner cigars. Curious fellow Orlebar, explained the master of the house he neither smokes nor drinks he has no vices and i sometimes think he has no virtues he is the nearest approach to a calculating machine that a warm-blooded animal could attain to and remarkably useful to you no doubt sir joseph said mountford invaluable The human calculating machine is the rarest product of nature. Your average accountant is distracted by the burden of his own egotism, his passions, domestic anxieties, temptations, proclivities. My friend Orlebar is arithmetic incarnate. Orlebar had a den of his own adjoining the billiard room by courtesy. Mr. Orlebar's study. An actual appearance in an accountant's office, a piece of pigeonholes and ledgers and dockets and files, its most interesting literature, a long row of Whitaker's almanacs, sole record of the passing years. The room was conveniently situated for Sir Joseph, who was fond of billiards And liked to run in and out of his secretary's den as occasion prompted. Urquhart took down a cue and amused himself with a few experimental shots with his eye half upon the half-open door of Orlebar's room. Yes, the grey old man was there. Urquhart heard the scratching of his pen. He went to the door and looked in at the bent shoulders and iron-gray head, leaning over a page of foolscap. Can I tempt you to put down your pen and take up a cue, Mr. Orlebar? He asked. Orlebar looked at him quietly, neither surprise nor gratification expressed on his blunt physiognomy I don't play billiards he said I sometimes mark he drew a sheet of blotting paper over a page of closely ruled columns filled with figures and left his desk as if ready for conversation don't let me disturb you if you don't care to play I have finished my evening's work, answered Orlebar, and I am going out for my evening constitutional. What, you walk after dinner, do you? Always, Mr. Urquhart, wet or fine. No machine will go on smoothly without oil, and locomotion is the only oil I know of that will keep the human machine. In good working order I walk six miles per diem let me walk with you said Urquhart with a friendly air Sir Joseph and Mr. Mountford are at cards I should like to walk won't it bore you though such a walk as I take and down the terrace so many turns for a mile It is not the kind of walk a young man like you would care for. Urquhart looked at the dull, grey face before he answered. There was a lurking shrewdness under the surface stolidity of Mr. Orlebar's countenance, which told him that any attempt to conceal his own motives would be worse than useless. It would damage his chances of getting any help in this quarter. I don't care where I walk as long as I keep you moving, he said, and I particularly want a little chat with you. Come along, then, said Orlebar, opening a glass door which gave on to the terrace, and in the next minute he and Urquhart were walking side by side in the misty stillness of a mild April night you want to talk to me you say you want a tip for the stock exchange no doubt you've a fancy for some new venture and you think Andrew Orlebar is up to the deed my dear Mr. Orlebar I am not a speculator my dear Mr. Orlebar I'm not a speculator. For the best of all reasons, I have never had any capital to invest. There are men who speculate without capital, but I am glad that you are not one of those, said Orlebar. They don't often last. The subject upon which I want to talk to you is one that touches me... Much nearer than any money question could, then it must touch you very near it does for it is an affair of the heart, and <laughs> you come to me for an advice in a love affair? exclaimed Orlebar with a dry laugh. <laughs> That's the oddest idea I've heard for a long time. Do I look like a man to advise a lover? How to win his mistress? Frankly, you don't, said Urquhart, echoing his laugh. But in my case, you can give very valuable advice, since the lady I am in love with is a kind of ward of your chiefs. Marie Arnold, you are in love with Marie, aren't you? well you might make a worse choice she is a handsome young woman she has a fine voice she has been well brought up and has good principles and she will not be without a diary I conclude ah then you're not so deep in love as to leave money out of the question my good Mr. Orlebar, I am a man of the world. I made one foolish marriage, a sweet girl, pure as an angel, but without a rap. I am too old to make a second blunder of the same kind. If I were a rich man, I should be proud to marry Miss Arnold without a penny, but I have only a younger son's portion. And I have a daughter to maintain. Sir Joseph must naturally desire to find a husband for his ward. Oh, why naturally? Because her position in his household is anomalous and must lead to complications now that Miss Higginson is grown up. Why anomalous? Oh, my dear Orlebar, You must see the difficulty of the case as clearly as i do said urquhart growing familiar here is a beautiful girl who is and yet is not a member of sir joseph's family there is no avowed relationship yet sir joseph is evidently as fond of her as of his daughter and heiress think of the difference between the positions of those two girls and consider the bad feeling that difference must awaken in poor Marie's mind a year or so hence unless she marries and takes her place in society on the strength of that marriage who, with a grain of worldly knowledge, can doubt that her claim upon Sir Joseph's is just as strong as Miss Higginson's. You mean that she is neither more nor less than sir joseph's unacknowledged daughter said orlebar that is my meaning my fixed conviction so let it be my dear sir was the bland reply you know very nearly as much as i do about miss arnold i was sent To a little mountain town in Provence to fetch the young lady at Sir Joseph's bidding. Her mother had died rather suddenly, and she, poor child, was alone and friendless, except for a few good-natured gossips, her dead mother's neighbors too poor and too insignificant to be much use to her. I brought her to London, and from London dispatched her to Ellerslie, she has lived ever since sir joseph told me that her father was a clever engineer who was of great assistance to him in the working of an iron mine and who was killed while in his service for my own part i see nothing remarkable in the fact that a man in sir joseph's position should show kindness to the widow and orphan of so valuable a servant That he should show kindness, no, but that he should show and introduce the engineer's daughter into his home and take her to his heart, there I think you will own. He oversteps the mark and strains credulity. By the way, how old was Marie at the time of her father's death? She was not born. A posthumous child! Was she born soon after her father's death? I cannot gratify you with such minute details. I have no curiosity on the point. Only as a man of the world. You must forgive me if I doubt your chief's account of the transaction. I am so fond of maria that i should like to know all i can about her parentage in her interest rather than my own i could love her no less had she been a beggar's brat i don't want to entrap her into a marriage that would mean poverty but if sir joseph would make a respectable settlement a settlement in accordance with his own large means you have not beaten about the bush with me and i'll be frank with you mr urquhart said orlebar gravely you are right in supposing that sir joseph considers his ward's position somewhat anomalous or rather that it may appear so when his daughter comes down to the full blaze of society footlights while marie arnold is left at the back of the stage i believe i am justified in saying that he would like to see this young person married to a husband whom she could love and he could approve with such a husband he would be disposed to treat liberally upon the question of settlements and i should say that miss arnold's dowry might be anything between twenty and fifty thousand pounds you know of course that the larger sum would be as easy a matter to sir joseph as the smaller it would be a question of his own inclination and judgment what amount he should give undoubtedly and do you think he would favor my suit Apart from the money question, I am not a bad match for a young lady in Miss Arnold's position. I belong to one of the oldest families in Cumberland, and I am heir presumptive to an earldom. Lord Penrith is still a young man, Mr. Urquhart. True, but he is a young man with an old man's habits and ideas and i don't think he will ever marry that is a point in your favor but to be frank with you i doubt if sir joseph would quite approve of your antecedents his ward would have to be very much in love with you in order to win her guardian's consent to the match urquhart's brow contracted at the suggestion He knew in his heart that Marie Arnold's present feeling for him was nearer dislike than love. And he knew that he would have a hard battle to fight before he could get her to be his advocate with Sir Joseph. His hope had been that Sir Joseph would adopt him as a suitor and force his suit with marie he did not despair however having seen many cases in which love began with aversion as for my antecedents he replied after a longish pause I don't fancy I have been worse than most young men of family and having sown a few wild oats I am all the more likely to settle down as a respectable family man. If I could win such a wife as Miss Arnold, I should have a spur to ambition, and might make my way in the political world. With Penrith's interests and Sir Joseph's, I might be able to achieve a distinguished public position. The aspiration is at least credible creditable. The best advice I can give you is to win the lady. With her on your side, there might be a chance of victory. Sir Joseph would do much to secure her happiness, concluded Orlebar in the friendliest tone, and then within himself he said, huh, But unless I am vastly deceived in my estimate of his knowledge of character, he will never entrust her happiness to a foxy-haired gentleman of your particular type. While this conversation was being carried on in a perambulatory ma- fashion on the terrace where the sound of the sea came with an undertone of monotonous melancholy as if it were the great voice of nature mourning The Degeneracy of Man, another conversation of which Marie Arnold was the subject, was going on in the drawing-room. Sir Joseph played his first two games with spirit, but the third game had hardly begun when his attention flagged and his play became careless. "'What do you think of my adopted daughter?' he asked abruptly. "'I think her a very handsome young woman mountford answered easily there could be hardly two opinions upon that point she seems as amiable as she is good-looking she is replied sir joseph quickly there is no seeming in her case she has lived a good many years under this roof and no one has ever had occasion to find fault with her she is a good dear girl The daughter of a man who was killed in my service i deemed it my duty to look after her and her widowed mother and i have never had cause to repent that i undertook the responsibility she has lived in this house as sibyl's friend and companion and she has never shown the slightest jealousy of my little girl's advantages i don't want her to find out how great a difference the outside world can make between a great heiress and a young woman who is practically a nobody i should like to see marie comfortably married before the end of this year married to a man she can love a man who shall be worthy of her love there should be no difficulty in finding such a man in the wide circle of your acquaintance Sir Joseph, said Brandon gravely, without looking up from his cards, he had an uncomfortable feeling that there was some serious intention in this host's discourse, an intention that involved himself. No, indeed, I know plenty of young men on their promotion, decent fellows enough to whom a wife with twenty thousand or so for her dowry would be like a gift dropped from heaven but i should like to find a husband of whose antecedents i know more than i can know about a casual acquaintance of the west end or city a man who comes of good stock and in whom honour and generous feeling are hereditary qualities I believe in heredity, Mr. Mountfort. My father was a peasant, but he was an honest man, and he could trace his descent from many generations of honest, God-fearing men. We plebeians have our old races as well as you patricians. I've never doubted that. On the Allendale estate, there are peasant families that were settled on the soil before the signing of the great charter freed them from their heaviest burdens. The game continued languidly, till Sir Joseph laid down his cards with a thoughtful sigh, took off his spectacles, and leant back in his chair. "'That girl doesn't like Urquhart,' he said abruptly. I wonder whether you noticed the change in her manner to Yes, Sir Joseph. I saw that Miss Arnold seemed hardly in her usual good spirits this evening. As Mr. Urquhart made himself obnoxious to her in any way? Not to my knowledge. It is only a womanish prejudice for which she can give no reason. I sounded her about him the last time he was here. She doesn't like him. Doesn't know why. Objects to the colour of his hair or the shape of his nose, perhaps. I didn't argue the matter with her, and I shouldn't have had him here again if he hadn't offered himself. It wouldn't have been neighborly to say no and here he is however if she had liked him ever so well I should have felt very doubtful about letting her marry him I have heard some disagreeable stories about his conduct in relation to women Brandon was silent He had not been favourably impressed by lord Penrith's younger brother but he did not want to injure that gentleman's chances with marie arnold having made up his mind that urquhart was honestly in love with her sir joseph had questioned him before tonight about his own plans for the future the scheme of his life which he had made for himself and brandon had told his host that he meant to go back to africa his future lay there in a wandering life he had no other ambition no other desire the old world of civilization could offer him nothing in exchange for the limitless horizons of the desert and the victories of the practiced hunter Sir Joseph had argued against the foolishness of this idea, and now tonight he took up the thread of a former conversation. I can conceive of no greater waste of life than to tramp about a sandy wilderness and shoot lions with occasional intervals of malarial fever, he said the life suits me as no other life could replied brandon but have you no tie to bind you to your own country have you never been in love or have you given your english heart to a blackamoor (laughs) since my boyish passion for my tutor's daughter a buxom young woman of nine and twenty whom i adored when i wore Eton collars and to whom i wrote six-page love letters every week while i was at the university i have been heart whole replied brandon with perfect frankless, frankness nor does my passion for the land of the zambezi extend to her living products in the shape of black beauty I have hitherto been adamant to the charms of the hottentot Venus and you are free free to fall in love with a handsome woman and marry her no sir Joseph I am not free to marry and I shall never marry you are not free Do you mean to tell me that you entangled yourself by a foolish marriage when you were a lad married the young woman of ninety nine and twenty your tutor's daughter (laughs) my tutor's daughter was far too wise to reciprocate my boyish flame she married one of the senior masters and is on the high road to become the wife of a bishop yet you say you are not free to marry there are reasons in my family history which should forbid marriage in my case sir joseph brandon answered gravely and then as in a vision of the night there came back upon the old man a fair young face turned to him in a sunlit room a sad pale face streaming with tears and a gentle voice telling him a cruel story of marriage and motherhood ending in lunacy yes this young man's mother went out of her mind soon after his birth and there was a strain of madness in his blood it was only right that he should live and die unmarried and yet but for this cruel bar what an excellent husband he would have made for Marie Sir Joseph believed himself as a judge of character, and he had formed a high opinion of Brandon Mountfort's rectitude and good feeling. And then he would have liked to have shown kindness to the son of that man whom Lucy Mountfort had loved with a girl's innocent fancy before he had seen the face of her low born husband. End of chapter 6.